1: Welcome to the New
0: Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books on Early Modern History. I am your host, Daniela Gutierrez Flores, and I am today delighted to welcome to our show Dr. Noemi Ndiaye, who is the Randy and Melvin Berling Assistant Professor of Renaissance and Early Modern English Literature at the University of Chicago. Welcome, Noemi, to our show. Hi, thank you, Daniela, for having me. Yeah, So today we're going to be talking about Dr. Noemi's um, new book. First, I'm going to say a couple of words about her as a scholar. She um, works on early modern English, French and Spanish theater with a critical focus on race. Her first monograph, which we will be discussing today, Is titled, Scripts of Blackness, Early Modern Performance Culture, and the Making of Race, which was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press this year, 2022. This monograph shows how performance culture helped strategically turn blackness into a racial category across early modern Western Europe. Noemi is also the co-editor with Leah Markey of Seeing Race Before Race, Visual Culture and the Racial Matrix in the Premodern World, which will be uh, published next year, in 2023. She has published articles in Shakespeare Shakespeare Quarterly, Renaissance Quarterly, Renaissance Drama, Early Theater, English Literature Renaissance, Literature Compass, Théâtre, and in many edited collections. So thank you, Noemi, for... um, (laughs) Thank you, Noemi, for accepting our invitation today to talk about your very exciting book. And... um, my first question was really a, a more of a, of a personal question. And so here at, um, at the New Books Network podcast, we typically open up asking authors to tell us a little bit about themselves, their academic background, um, in an effort to understand how the projects we're discussing um, came to be. So I was really... Um, pleasantly surprised that from the very get-go your book puts you as an author really as an intellectual at the very center of of the stage to use a theatrical metaphor Um, you open (laughs) you open with with very personal anecdotes that at least partially begin to tell the story of this intellectual project so I just wanted to ask like could you tell our listeners about um, how this project came to be or how these anecdotes uh, might help us understand how this book originated. Right, right. I'm so glad
0: that you picked up on this this passage, those three uh, scenes, those moments of formation at the beginning of the book, because that's... Um, that's one of the things that I could not really include in my doctoral dissertation, which is the basis of the book. And so part of finding my voice as a book writer, as opposed to a doctoral candidate was going there, right. With the biographical and those, uh, those moments. So I'm, I'm glad <laughs> that they caught your attention. Um, I'm going to, I think to answer your question, I think I'm going to focus on the, the third uh, scene because the, the first, um, the one that, that's set in Seville that's about the Cabalgada de Reyes, and the second one, uh, which is about this performance of disciplines uh, at the Sorbonne University in France a couple of years ago, um, they happened while I was already, I mean, I was either working on my dissertation, doing um, you know research for the project, so it was already uh, it had already come together uh, or it was actually after I had completed the dissertation. But the third one, the oldest one, uh, actually happened before I started doing any research before I even did a master's actually. Oh, Um, that's, yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's 2008. Um, And that takes us back to uh, when I was young and going to acting school, hoping to become a professional actress in Paris. Um, oh, so, interesting yeah and uh, so I, w- I was doing this at night right while um, studying during during daytime uh, so I had the full the full experience and this is what the scene captures is a conversation that I had with my um, acting instructor uh, who was a terrific uh, teacher that um, who it was a moment of incomprehension between the two of us when i had been assigned uh for my portfolio my acting portfolio is seen from a play which is you know an unremarkable contemporary french play that focuses on you know a very problematic rendition of a historical atemporal africa uh on the tragic mode and i was supposed to play the 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 lead part, Um, and so this this conversation that I was having with her, she was telling me, you know, and she was right. This is not working. This scene is not coming together, in part because you are not quote unquote being African enough for the part. Um, And so she she was trying to support me. She was trying to help me find the character according to the paradigms, the tools that she has, right, that she has inherited um, uh, from, from, from French culture. And, um, and as she was suggesting possible solutions to help me find the characters, her, the way she gestured towards her face was unambiguously suggesting the use of some kind of cosmetic prosthetic blackness to help me be more African. Uh, so that's, you know, that's an anecdote I mentioned because I think it's, you know, I'm not going to say I wrote the book just immediately, I knew that I was going to write a book in response to this moment. That is not how it happened. But this scene has stayed with me effectively over the years. And I do think that ultimately, subconsciously, this is what I was trying to do to somehow create the tools that my acting teacher didn't have at the time. Because we don't, we don't talk about those things in France, right? That scholarship is not readily accessible, So I think part of the project was really trying to create the tools that I wish she had had at at the time. Um, and so that, you know, I took that with me when I moved on to uh, doing research for my master's, where I was working on Afrobane, uh, the, the female British playwrights uh, theater, which is very interesting when it comes to race and gender. And then when I moved on to uh, working on my PhD dissertation after I moved to, to the U.S. and became really a pre-modern critical race scholar.
1: Did I, did I answer the question? I hope. Yeah, absolutely. No, I am I'm glad um you mentioned that particular scene because it it's it's very powerful um and and really moving, really it sets really again <laughs> the stage for, for the reader, right? In how this all this is in very much also um a project that has political implications, right? Of understanding things that are just um, just so ingrained in cultural imagination, in this case of France, but as you show, not only France, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just across across Europe and really um, then this side of the Atlantic as well. Um, so thank you. Yeah, um, I just want to say a few words to our listeners who haven't read the book, um, just um, about what this book touches um on so scripts of blackness explores as you say the material practices of racial impersonation in early modern europe um in in theater specifically in the english spanish and french performance traditions of the 16th and 17th centuries right although you i think you um move across uh centuries Throughout the book. I I take some liberties, yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so your book focuses on how three of these techniques contributed to the formation of Blackness as a racial category. And those are Black Up, Black Speak, and Black Dances, which are all, um, correct me if I'm wrong, terms coined by you to talk about these techniques. That's right. So blackup, which is um, the object of chapters one and two, um, deals with cosmetic um, impersonation, right? The use of some kind of, of makeup, which in the early modern period would have been something like soot or charcoal um, to impersonate um, a black person or a person of afro-descendants yeah. right and then then yeah, black speak
0: more of it. Uh, cosmetic yeah. and i would just add sorry very quickly i would just add mm-hmm. prosthetic since yes uh, prosthetic this is involved masks but also wigs uh, so i'm interested in in those those technologies right it all goes yeah. under the, the label of blackup
1: clothing as well or... yeah very true mm-hmm. and then um the second technique you you explore is black speak, which is the the auditive, the sonic dimension of racial impersonation, how theater imagined um after the sentence spoke, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly black dances, how these characters in stage moved, um, in in contrast to white characters, for example. That's right. So just want to uh set that roadmap for listeners before i go on and one thing i I was very intrigued by um by your book is the focus on theater right and uh, well as we know uh, us who um work an early modern period the 16th and 17th centuries really theater was a huge part of everyday life for people across social classes and it was also important in political life right it was a source of entertainment at at court
0: mm-hmm. um
1: across europe also an important feature uh, feature of celebrations public acts and even diplomatic encounters so in this context where theater was so intertwined with political power um how do you think these techniques with, of racial impersonation as you say um meet the ideological needs of Spain, England, and France, which are really the, the big uh, names in the projects of colonization and expansion at this moment in Europe.
0: That's such a great question. Um, you know, the it, it's <laughs> you've basically named the question that is moving the whole book forward, right? So basically, what I'm what I'm trying to understand in the book is how blackness became a racial category, right? Because for a very long time, it was understood as one form of difference against among other forms of differences. But not all forms of human differences are otherness or racial, right? What I mean by racial, and here I'm, I'm drawing on a large corpus of scholarship in my field that is informed by critical race theory, uh, by thinkers such as Stuart Hall and, and, and many others. Um, a racial category, race is a system of power that is packaged as a system of knowledge, right? And so, when um, uh, when a um, a form of difference is racialized, it means that it becomes uh, targeted strategically, essentialized, and read as a characteristic that justifies those people's position in a hierarchy that is usually unjust, unfair, imbalanced, right? That's what it means to be a racial category. And so I'm looking at the process through which that happened to blackness in early modernity for obvious reasons that had to do with the development of color-based slavery in the Atlantic world, right? And in the in the aftermath the the, the wake of colonization. And so Basically, my 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 theory, my my core hunch is that in order to understand how you get a whole European population to change the way they think about black folks at the time. Right. How you get them to think about blackness as a racial category is by looking at mass media. Which is why I'm looking at theater, performance culture, and the uh, techniques that you beautifully uh, identified and, and presented to auditors. And I'm trying to pin down precisely the kind of new habits of mind that each of those techniques, and they were used often together, but not always, right? You had specific combinations. Uh, so I'm trying to pin down the effect that each of those techniques could have on spectators. And those effects are varied, right? It's not it's not a one-size-fits-all kind of model. Uh, but I'm interested in the affordances of uh, Black Up, Black Speak, and Black Dance. And I think they function, you know, um, in, in really interesting and different ways. So, as you, as you said, I start the book with two chapters on Black Up. And with Black Up, we start with what I call the diabolical hermeneutics of Blackface, of Black Up. Um, and so, basically, what that relies on is the idea that in medieval theater, all across Europe, in, in Catholic Europe, uh, the devil was performed in Black Up so that for early modern spectators who were still familiar, who remembered, who had that kind of collective cultural memory uh, that came from medieval theater, when they saw characters, sub-Saharan characters, performed in Black Up, and when they heard cues developed by the playwrights, uh, not just in England, but also in Spain, also in France, when they heard those cues, what it did was reactivate some kind of kinship between, in their minds between the figure of the African, right, the question of all the racial blackness, and the devil, suggesting that Africans were the figure of the enemy within, just like the devil is. Right. The one that you let in that somehow is are always already inside and is threatening to tear apart the fabric of this deeply Christian Catholicism.
1: Um, Also linked to, sorry, the idea of of the stain, right, of of sin that's very closely mm -hmm. related to, to the devil, of course.
0: And fallenness, absolutely. This is one way in which, um, you know, in um, in English uh, medieval theater, for instance, we know that the fallen souls were performed in Black Up. So you're absolutely right. It's... The devil and his acolytes, the devil and the people he has gained. <laughs> so, right, so, um, but that's just one example, right? In that first chapter, I I move from that paradigm to um, a careful consideration of what's happening in Iberia, and uh, here we are on your turf, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I'm looking at the ways in which that diabolical hermeneutic of blackface. Yes, it does exist in Iberia. We find it in the Codice de Autos Viejos, right, in uh, around 1575. But after that, we don't really find it anymore. It disappears. Why? Because to get back to your question, the ideological needs of early modern Iberia at this point were different. The kind of stories that White Iberians and spectators needed to hear when they were going to the theater, when they were consuming cultural products and mass media, what they needed to hear about blackness was not those people cannot be integrated. Those people are the are the enemy within. No, because they lived in a slavery based society already. Black people were everywhere, right? The, the, the Black population in Seville around 1600 is about 10%. It's huge, right? So there's no question of, like, excluding those people. It's about including them, but including them in their capacity as enslaved subjects right? And shaping that kind of habit of mind required different stories. And so I'm looking at a different kind of hermeneutic, different kind of uh, se- semiotic baggage that was conveyed by Black Up in Iberian theater at that time. And I'm looking at all the really fascinating um, um, metaphors that playwrights like Lope de Vega, Tirso de Molina, Calderon, the the greatest, um, that they are using uh, when they are uh, um, sketching black characters performed in black up, right? I'm looking at the poetics that are associated with black up. And those are completely different metaphors that have nothing to do with the devil. A lot of them are about food, right, which suggests that those people are conceived as some kind of objects of consumption for a hungry yes. Iberian body politic. And I know you work, this This is really your turf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was very excited about this particular part. <laughs> yes, uh, Daniela works in food studies. Uh, um But but so you find those metaphors, but you also find metaphors of luxury commodities like jet, ebony everywhere. And that that different type of metaphor is usually mobilized or deployed around uh, the figure of exceptional black men. Right. To suggest that, yes, they are enslavable commodities. You can purchase them, but they're they're pricey. They're rare. There's something exceptional about them. Right. right. They they give status as well. Right. Exactly. And of course, animal metaphors. I mean, these are just I'm not going to go through all of them because this goes back to the point I was making earlier that there are so many effects, you know, affordances that are attached to those techniques. But my core idea is that to understand the relation between the metaphors, which is, um, you know, which, which is what I call scripts of blackness, the title of the book. And the techniques, material techniques of performance, Black Up, Black speak, Black Dance, you need to look at the social, political, historical, and economic context of this, the region you're looking at, because the connection between the two is going to answer the specific ideological needs of that time and place.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um... I, I did want to note, because this might not be too familiar for listeners, um, it's important to consider that Afro-descendants were not really a part of, of theater companies, right? To They did not... Black characters were performed by white people um, in, in all three countries. So this is where really um, chapters one and two really become very important to Understand the dynamics that are going on on stage, um, considering that of course there would have been um, black people in the audience, right? Um, seeing themselves being represented by 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 white people in black up. Um, and I did want to ask um, you explain why you use black up instead of blackface, which we might popularly uh, refer to that today, um, like cosmetic and prosthetic. Um, racial impersonation as, as blackface. Could you tell our listeners a little bit a little bit about that particular well, decision? I, right,
0: that's just very technical. So it's just that blackface is actually a term that emerges if you look at you know scholarship on the subject. It's usually used to, uh, to talk about minstrelsy, Anglo-American minstrelsy as it emerges and thrives in the 19th century. And as you point out, the basis of this is uh, makeup, but that's not all. Minstrelsy actually also includes specific uh, speech patterns and dances. So the reason why I'm using the term black up rather than blackface is because blackface actually merges all the techniques that I'm looking at. And what I'm trying to do in the book is analyze and separate them and look at their separate effects. So it's not, you know, I I don't fear anachronism or American imperialism. Uh, that's not why it's just that it's um that blackface as a critical term is a little too blunt of an instrument for the kind of cutting and analyzing that i want to do
1: yeah it allows for more focused analysis right and breaks up blackface into its different components and as you say sometimes you have an intersection between the techniques but sometimes they appear um independently so very true hmm
0: and I think um, yeah if I may just add uh, of course here, um, I think it's interesting you know intellectually to see the, the, the separate effects of those techniques when you look at them separately. but there's also some transhistorical purchase to separating them because some of those so today if you look at how things are uh, working in the US, for instance, very few of us could <laughs> witness an act of blackup and not feel very uncomfortable, right? Black up is just not acceptable anymore in American culture. Uh, not European cultures, that, that's a different story. But in American culture, that's just healthy. Which means that we are very unlikely to encounter uh, performances of blackface, minstrelsy, at least in the uh, professional theater context. But if you look at black speak, separately, independently from that place, right? Just the technique of using an accent to sound funny, to sound black, that very much still exists. That's very much still in use in the world of stand-up comedy, for instance. The same goes for dance, right? If you look at uh, how someone like Miley Cyrus appropriates twerking and the kind of work she's doing about race when, when in those acts, um, I think... Separating those techniques is not just intellectually sound, but allows us to think a little more transhistorically about the long shelf life of some of those effects.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, it, chapters one and two deal with with black hope, and then um, chapter three you turn to the sonic technique, which which you call black speak. Um, and this technique, as you as you note in your book, took on very different forms across these two countries that you study. And as you say, it was as powerful as black up in the formation of blackness, um, which might be counterintuitive for some, right? Because, really, because of the predomination of, of visual culture um, today and even in early modernity. Can you tell us a little bit more about how Black speak differed between the three um, countries' traditions that you study? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Black speak... um...
0: First is just in terms of archives, there is a clear imbalance. Black speak was extremely popular in Iberia, in, both in Portuguese and in Spanish theater. It actually originates in in Portuguese drama and then finds its way into Spanish theater. But if you just look at the archives, it, it's everywhere, right? In professional theater, in viancicos, the so in in a genre that is closer to poetry that also has to do with the songs that were actually sung in churches during religious services, right? It's um, black speak, which was known in, in Spain as habla de negros, uh, was really a pervasive and multimodal technique. So just you know, following the itinerary of black speak in Spain, all the places in where in which you find it, uh, that was already like 20 pages of that, of that chapter. Yes. Uh, by contrast, you find very little black speak in uh, France and in England. I think that an interesting platform for thinking about the dissemination of Iberian black speak throughout the rest of Europe is Naples. Naples Italy mm-hmm. Which was a which was a Spanish outpost of course. Um, if you look at a technique that I that, that I get at which is called the moresque the moresque was a, a musical genre, a little song that was uh, dramatizing a funny comedic romantic conversation between black man and a black woman and it was in heavily, Accented Neapolitan speech that integrated some words from the African dialect canuri, uh, African language, sorry, canuri, uh, which was uh, prominent among enslaved Neapolitan, uh, Black Neapolitans at the time. So it's really, you know, formally, some scholars have looked at it and have said, this really looks like Spanish habla de negros, right? And what's interesting. Me, is that because it thrives in Italy, in Naples, which was one of the centers for the development of Commedia dell'Arte, uh, it becomes integrated into the repertoires of Italian actors uh, who belong to the Commedia dell'Arte tradition. And those actors go everywhere. Those actors go to Paris. They go to London. They go to Germany. They're invited everywhere. They bring their repertoires with them. So I think, you know, I don't really look at Italy in the book, partly because I don't speak Italian. Um, But I do think that Italy was a, you know, there is more work to do there. It must have been an interesting platform for the dissemination of Iberian influence. But to go back to your question, um, French and English archives. So you do find some black speak, but very little. Right. And the forms of black speak that I see in France, for instance, uh, differ from what we find in Spain to the extent that in Spain, the, the technique that is most popular consists in uh, using Castilian and distorting it. Right. Using some kind of stereotypical, profoundly artificial accent that would reflect whatever white people thought sounding black meant. Right, but it's recognizable, and it allows you um, as a technique to make puns. For instance, right there's um, a recurrent pun that you find in the in habla de negros is when a black character wants to say corazón, the heart, and ends up saying culasón, right, With booty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, like, I've I've found that specific pun several times, um, and I don't think it's a coincidence.
1: So anyway, and and pearl and or like perra and perla, right?
0: Another Absolutely. one that's- Absolutely. I'm, g- I'm glad you picked up on that passage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I, I was specifically interested in this one because enslaved peoples were used to retrieve pearls, right, in, in many parts of, of the Spanish Atlantic. So it was like perversely just accurate.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The pun that Daniela is alluding to is um, in, a, in, a, in a play by Lope de Vega, where you have the character of a mixed race woman of black descent, uh, who is alternatively called Perra bitch and perla a pearl uh, and that's a very recurrent pun um, but so so that's the situation in iberia right um, and by contrast if you look at the french archives for instance the few moments when we do find black speak what we find is jargon nonsense what i call africanese which is a completely invented african language Right, uh, that would be performed with whatever people thought was an African accent on top of it. Right, and so that functions differently. That is a way of rather than moving through puns and humor, it's about unleashing imagination, going going crazy. Right, and. and okay played a little bit about the different ways of doing it, the ways in which actors could mobilize um, pitch, tone, you know, uh, in order to suggest radical difference from their own native languages, Um, quantity as well, you know. Uh, imagine that a character is saying something uh, that takes three sentences, and when somebody translates what they're saying into French, well, it's actually two words in French. You know, those those right. techniques are, are different ways of creating uh, humor around the situation. Um, but 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 what is consistent um, is that you know across the board, I think it conveys idea of inferiority, infantilization of the black subjects who speak in black speak whichever version they're mobilizing um, and it, it's always humorous always funny right uh, which is very problematic and explains why it still exists in stand-up comedy of course and and the last thing i'm going to say um one thing i find very exciting um, is that well, exciting is not the term. Interesting, rather, <laughs> is that in some cases, uh, black speak allows the dramaturgy of a play to establish a connection between the black speakers and other non-white subjects who also spoke with a stage accent. Right. So, in um, in Iberian theater, for instance, you have the the thetheo of the of. Uh, quote unquote, gypsy people, Romani people. Uh, That was a very common way of representing Romani folks and racializing them at the time, right? So there are connections happening uh, in in that moment when Black speak can somehow resemble a little bit the technique used to racialize Romani people sonically, right? In the yeah. French archives, I see similarities with the Ottomans. In the English archives, I see similarities with the Irish accent. That was
1: very interesting to me. Yeah, and really proves um, your idea of of the matrix, right? Just if the interconnections um, between <laughs> different categories <laughs> of otherness, right? <laughs> um. In relation to Blackspeak, I did want to ask about some of the practical editorial decisions you made um, in your book, and specifically um, when translating passages of, of Habla de Negros into English, um, where you used um, special characters. So could you, well, first explain to our listeners what I'm referring to and um, the rationale behind it? Yes, of course. Um, so that was. <laughs> That was a
0: challenging moment in the project. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, first, to clarify, uh, a lot, most actually, most of the plays, the Spanish plays and French plays that I'm working with in this, in this book have not been translated into English yet. A couple have been, but that's, that's really it. So most of the time I have to provide my own translations. Uh, and when you do that, you have to make, indeed, editorial decisions as to how to convey, well, Black speak, the, the the accent and what it looks like, which was a combination of, um, as I was mentioning earlier, phonetic distortion that allows you to make, fun, to make puns, sorry, but also um, grammatical mistakes, right? Uh, misconjugation, misgendering, misnumbering, all of that. Um, and so one difficulty is something I'm really... Um, yeah, wary of is making those texts, those funny texts, available for recirculation, right? Mm-hmm. Part of what I want to do is draw that archive to scholarly attention because a lot of it has been ignored for a long time, um, at least in the transnational context. But I don't want to make it easier for those those texts that are deeply racializing deeply problematic i mean the find that we the fact that we are laughing at it that the moment when you start laughing at the character who speaks in black speak you become implicated in the racist dynamics of spectatorship uh, that were intended by the playwrights right so part of the question i was facing was how can i do that how can i ethically Present this object for analysis without reanimating its recent right. dynamics, right? Um, and I've seen other scholars, you know, going around this question in completely different ways. I've seen other scholars translating Black Speak by uh, using African American vernacular English. I I don't want to oh. go because I don't think this is the way I think black speak was a completely artificial, stereotypical, racist, uh, dialect, and it, it doesn't work to align it, uh, conceptually with, you know, a, a, a valid version of English today. Um, right. And so the decision that I made in order to, uh, to work around that difficulty was to not, properly translate the accent, but signal it with diacritic signs. So whenever I am translating a line that contains grammatical mistakes, I am flagging that there is a grammatical mistake without translating the mistake by using Mm -hmm. a, a hash symbol, right? And when there is a phonetic distortion, I signal that there is a phonetic distortion by using the asterisk. But I don't want to actually um give a material life to what the or the distortion might be because one thing that the archives of habla de negro show us is that this accent this the comedic nature of uh black speak is such it's so humorous so efficient that it always catches on it always catches on way too quickly and i don't want to be implicated in that process
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, that logic would almost, um, that would be the logic of an early modern translator, right? Not not a 21st, um, right. you know, crit- race-conscious um, translator or, or scholar. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To make, cool. as you say, available those quote-unquote jokes, right? For, and in a way, it also just, you know motivates people to learn other <laughs> languages and and read the originals to yes. understand really your points amen to that <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving on to to the last chapter which deals with with the kinetic with um, the the moves right um, of of the racial impersonation um, of blackness how do you think we're Dances were different from from black up and black speak in shaping uh, blackness as a racial category. Mm. So,
0: <clears throat> very, I mean, very similar and very different at the same time in its affordances, because it is a platform that simultaneously racialized black subjects, just like black speak and black up, but also a platform that could be mobilized unlike black up and black speak by black subjects for emancipation purposes. Um and in that sense I, I will say writing this chapter was the
1: nicest part <laughs> of, the, <laughs> of the whole book, you know. It is a little bit of a fresh uh, a, a breath of fresh air at the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean maybe we can talk about that about the critical affect at some point but um it, Let's put it that way. Um, dance was very much drawing on the same kind of animalizing, sexualizing metaphors that you could find conveyed through black speak and black up, right? Uh, and this is where you you will find it mobilized, uh, doing racializing work by white performers and white choreographers. But at the same time. Um, there were uh, lots, actually, lots of Black Europeans who were using it, if you look at Iberia, for instance, to make a living, right, and to possibly buy their own freedom. I am working in that chapter, at the beginning of that chapter, on a a, Hakara, a ballad, focusing on this uh, apparently historical figure of Francisco Mises, and it wasn't historical, well, he was... Um, believable enough to have the historical feel that you get from the genre of ballads. Who uh, was executed in 1687? And the story of that uh, um, Afro-Spanish dancer is that he starts as enslaved, and one day he's mischievous. He gets drunk. He drinks too much, uh, and his master decides to punish it. His master owns a, a tavern. Uh, the The smart, the smart um, man convinces his enslaver to not punish him, telling him. I will pay you back. I'll make all the money, and you know, you will you will get your you will get your money back for all the damage that I just caused. And that happens because the enslaver uh, allows him to dance dance throughout the city, dance throughout uh, taverns, uh, all all around all around. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The enslaver allows uh, Francisco to dance a lot, and Francisco makes so much money that he actually not only pays back uh, the enslaver, but also buys his own freedom from him, right? And this is how he starts uh, his career as a free man of color. Now, of course, the ballot does not end well, uh, because a free man of color who can use his mobility to uh, push against the strictures of slavery-based Iberian society is a threat and must be stopped and must be immobilized. And that's what happens at the end of the ballad. But that uh, kind of literary artifact, I think speaks to the fact that dance was a medium, was a platform that could be used both by white Europeans to assert their agenda and by Black Europeans to try and free themselves to push back, um, and it works in you know very different ways in different contexts, different uh, dance genres, uh, all across Europe. But that's the that's the key. Um, that's the the
1: core of that chapter. I I really loved your reading of. Um... Surrounding the notion of mobility, like the mo- the mobility of the body, um, really uh, giving way to social mobility, right? Yeah. Um, that's very very compelling um, image. Mm.
0: So glad, and and I will say, you know, the idea um, the idea that that dance uh, and the entertainment practices developed around it was a, a medium that that had those affordances is not entirely new. If you look at Cynthia Hartman's subjection, for instance, when she talks about the politics of the enslaved, she goes there, right? Uh, what is new in, in that chapter, my contribution to the field, is to show that those dynamics, those fraught, ambiguous, ambivalent dynamics around what dance could do and whose interest it could serve, it doesn't start in... In the 18th century, or in the Atlantic world, it starts at the beginning of the 16th century in metropolitan Iberia before the slave trade has really touched the Atlantic.
1: Yeah, these these notions are really older than we than we think. Always, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, across your your exploration of these three um, techniques. You emphasize in numerous occasions how you're reading the parts from other approaches um, that deal with uh, race and performance. And here I quote you, um, you say how you do not share the critical inclination to read drama, theater, and performance culture as sites that automatically, I think that's the key point, uh, resist hegemonic ideological forces. Could you tell us more about this position of yours and what this means for, for the political uh, implications of your, of your intellectual project? Of course, I think, so this is in the
0: CODA, right? Where I reflect a little bit upon my own methodology and, and the metaphors I'm I'm using throughout um, as a, as a historiographic mode. So basically, you know, in, In performance studies, and especially Black performance studies, there is a tendency to look at performance as a site that can allow the injured to return the injury, right? To actually emancipate themselves. There is an attention to the moments of unexpected surprises, the moments when um, what happens on stage what happens in the moment of life performance exceeds what you would expect from a racist script, right? So a, a deep attention to the possibilities of resistance that are carved out in the medium of performance. And I'm not denying the existence of those moments. I think these are powerful, and attending to them is part of what Eve Seedric calls the reparative mode, right, uh, in, in, in Critical Scholarship. But what I am suggesting is that there, we can also go too far in that, in that direction. When we start paying more attention to the possibilities for resistance that happen in specific located moments that scholars beautifully excavate you know, and bring to our attention, um, it, it, there is a risk of paying more attention to these because we are um, drawn to freedom we are drawn to resistance, of part of our disciplinary ethos right uh, paying more attention to them than to the conditions that they were exceeding in the first place right of and course. so I've been told that I have a kind of, architectonic way of thinking. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's actually quite on point. I do think, I it is, know. I'm using the metaphor of, of the map, right? Saying that it is important to me to look at the map, we're not forgetting the territory, we're not forgetting that in reality, right, there will be moments when the territory does not exactly line up with the map, with the model, with the conceptual um, 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 taxonomy that we were provided with, right, there are some possibilities for resistance that emerge here and there, but I'm saying that the map does matter, that the taxonomy does matter, that overall, the fact that all those scripts of Blackness, different as they are from one another, flexible as they are, uh, combinable as they are, dependent on specific historical local conditions as they are, ultimately, they all converge in the direction of racialization. I'm saying that this matters and that we should not lose sight of it and that a first step in you know, the development of the field, is to attend to those structural conditions. And only mm-hmm. once we have those as the premise, the accepted, well-known premise of our work, can we productively attend to exceptions and moments of surprising resistance. And the reason, I, I think the reason why I think that way has a lot to do with the fact that I am French, which means <laughs> that <laughs> no, but it means that we <laughs> a culture where we don't talk about race. Using the word right. race is racist. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, what this means is that when um, scholars, students, high schoolers, readers, anyone really thinks about early modern drama, neoclassical drama, Corneille, Racine, Molière, the classics, they're completely unaware of those racial dynamics of the fact that this corpus did terrible damage ideologically historically to 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 African folks and Afro-Europeans right and so I think this is why for me effectively the first task at at hand is to expose that reality right saying here's the map the map of racialization yeah We'll talk about something else,
1: <laughs> right? In a way, it's, it's in order to to really understand and engage with with the notion of black resistance, as you put it, um, we have to deal with the white gaze, right? With the, with the counterpart of of that, um, exactly. So all, all those categories that were actually resisted, and I'm glad you brought up um, the point of of your um, French background because you you were also trained in france right um and Mm -hmm. it it really speaks to just how um interdisciplinary your your work is you deal with three very vast and um rich traditions that are fields in them on in in and on themselves right the english the french Mm -hmm. and and the spanish Uh and um i found that your your book really we talk a lot about inter- interdisciplinarity right but your book really puts pressure on how we think about and organize our fields by national and linguistic boundaries and mm-hmm. you move you move just smoothly from one to another um i i want to ask you what do you think this approach brings uh, to the table how it en- enriches our conversations about race specifically, and also b- because I'm sure there are many, um, what challenges does this methodology uh, present? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean that's that's the million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I will I will die on that hill that you cannot <laughs> early modern racial formations without a transnational approach. Because the project of race-making, and in particular the racialization of African people and Afro-descendants, was a collaborative, trans-European Transcolonial project. You look at um, lexicons, it will show you that, right? When Jean-Nico in 1606 is trying to define what a Negro is, he is mobilizing Iberian experience and category. It's deeply transnational thinking. Patterns of slave trafficking between the French and the English show you that it's transnational, right? The asiento dynamics, all of that shows you that it's transnational. And as I hope my book compellingly shows, the circulation of scripts of Blackness across European borders also tells you that this is a transnational phenomenon, that you cannot understand why all of a sudden Blackspeak pops up in Richard Brome's 1637 play, The English More, if you don't know about habla de negros and Neapolitan moresque, right? All those Absolutely. things. Um, so this is, you know, this this is this is my key idea. Um, so what does it change, right, in your perspective when you when you are able to put all of this um, all of these archives from different traditions together and try and get the the bird's eye view? Um, I will say that in addition to you know, giving you a, a, a sounder uh, take on how modern racial formation worked as a phenomenon. It also allows you to appreciate each of those traditions separately better. Because it allows you to see what is unique, what is idiosyncratic to each of them. Why did uh, Black speak take that specific form in that specific place? Why did the diabolical hermeneutics of blackface um, vanish super early in Iberia in the 1620s in France but remains so popular in England right until the end of the 17th century, right? Mm -hmm. You can only become aware of the oddities of each tradition if you look at them together. So I think that's, you know, for for specialists of each tradition who are not necessarily uh, planning on becoming comparativists, that is my selling point. (laughs) That is is the main takeaway for them.
1: And, you mentioned Italian sources um, already, but you also touch upon Latin American ones, right? Um, you focus on these three, but really, the the vastness of this of how this this archive bleeds into another one another is just very interesting and really shows how much more work we absolutely is needed, right in the in the in the field.
0: Absolutely. And that's one of the,
1: you know, the second half of your question
0: was about the challenges of it. Well, that's mm-hmm. one of the big challenges with uh, comparative work in general. Where do you stop? Where does the comparison <laughs> stop? Uh, I want to bring Italy into the mix. I really feel like I should have a better grasp of Portuguese. Because there's more right. happening in Portuguese drama. Also talk
1: about Portuguese sources. <laughs> I,
0: I want to look at what's happening in the in the Netherlands, right? This is this is a country that has a rich dramatic culture and is very deeply involved in colonial competitions and the enslavement of Afro descendants. I'm sure things were happening down there, uh, but you know, I, I anyway. Um, and then a question I got when I was presenting my project recently uh, to Another group to a race before race initiative group. Um, I got a question from a, a global Renaissance scholar who was asking about how scripts of blackness, um, you know, travel or not, you know, what the racialization of blackness looks like in the Arabic context. So I'm like, Oof, mm-hmm. I don't have linguistic skills for that <laughs> very valid question. I would love to be able to look not at the Arabic context, but the Ottoman context, right? We know that there were lots of Black people in the Ottoman Empire. You look at the figure of the eunuch, eunuch who was deeply racialized in that time period. You know, it it would make sense to expand,
1: but where do you stop? (laughs) Well, and it really speaks just to how, um, I think, although all the avenues... um, you're opening with your work right because this is not a a one-person project this really has to be a collective endeavor across fields and languages and academic traditions to really bring these questions to the fourth of our inquiries thank you so much for saying this like I've been (laughs) I've
0: been saying during my book during my my book launch and another couple of talks, um, you know, where I'm really trying to pitch not just my book but the project where I'm trying to. You don't have to
1: have all the answers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What I'm trying to pitch, what I call the field of transnational early modern critical race studies, uh, what I'm saying is really what I my worst fear. Would be for people to think that this is it. Noemi did it. This, this book has the answers, and we don't need to go there anymore. We can go back to you know uh, to to regular programming and back to our silos. Now, what I want is to recruit. What I want is other scholars to actually see the the value of a transnational approach and take it from there.
1: Nope, I very excited uh, about the possibilities of that um and i think it it transpires when reading your book absolutely thank you um
0: yes okay i wanted to ask because you are you know i know that you are such a careful and attentive reader (laughs) thank Um, you what was you know where did you see the value of the book? What was most uh, striking or perhaps surprising or, or interesting to you? Because I know what I put in it. What I'm interested <laughs> in is <are> how you respond to <laughs>
1: well i mean obviously the the parts where you discuss early modern spain were of particular interest to me uh, for obvious reasons but it was very refreshing to see those in conversation with with other traditions um and really see how they illuminate one another and as you see um i mean as you say to see how they are unique in their own respect um In particular, well, you already mentioned the commodifying script of Blackness that you talk about um, in chapters one and two, um, because I think it really builds bridges with um, thinking about, obviously, your book deals with material culture, um, but also with with food studies, um, with just the wider network of global commerce, right, that we don't necessarily tend to think about in in terms of of race outside obviously the network of slavery right and just see how those networks are completely intertwined in the in the period
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um i have to say that i think what was most compelling to me was um just how how strong your voice as an author is! Um, mm. You're very assertive in your ideas, and and that was well as an early career scholar, very exciting to see. Um, to mm. and especially with with a topic like this, right, that is so urgent and so important, mm. um, and That's- it was. Overall, just a very uh, pleasurable experience um, reading you. Not only, I mean, as you say, it was absolutely just infuriating at times. And um, (laughs) (laughs) but you you make you do a beautiful job in presenting these ideas in a very um, compelling way that move precisely to to future inquiries and um, important conversations. And I think that's that's my biggest takeaway of your book. Thank
0: you, thank you. This is just wonderful to hear.
1: Uh, you're also a very good writer, <laughs> just uh, very, very smooth. If, if someone is interested in in the book, but maybe does not have an academic background, I think it is absolutely legible um, outside of, of academic conventions, which is very important, I think, when talking about these things, right. um, yeah. the, the topic of race. Um, to Mm -hmm. make these conversations accessible right to different uh, audiences
0: very true very true i'm I'm really glad to hear this sometimes i'm i I worry about jargon and accessibility so it's really good to hear (laughs) that the the, the book is legible excellent
1: (laughs) well yes we all aspire to to writing a, a legible book right um I I did want to ask, it's it's kind of related to to this question you asked me, which (laughs) um, really flips the table here, which is how all your discussions illuminate our present, right? Um, I found specifically that your discussion of Black speak illuminated the logics of racist humor that is, as you have mentioned numerous times, very pervasive, right? and, and then we have the wonderful epigraph to chapter three, which is uh, Beyonce's lyrics in, in the song Formation. Which she says, okay, ladies, now let's get information.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so you have numerous instances across the book that really echo our present day, right? The, the question of race today. And um, well, first I want to ask on that, on that epigraph of uh, Beyoncé, because it's just too good, <laughs> and, and just in general, what the role of scholarship like yours that is grounded on critical race studies um, has in our understanding of the racial dynamics that we face as a society today.
0: Right, right. Well, the <laughs> so that that epigraph, um, it's you know b- because this last chapter on dance is trying to bring to the fore the old, the Renaissance roots of that um, that phenomenon that, as I was saying a few minutes ago, had already been untangled and illuminated by Sadia Hartman in the context of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, it's a chapter that is particular, particularly, perhaps more than the other chapters, invested in the trans-historical range of those techniques and their uh, semiotic affordances, right? Mm-hmm. So bringing Beyonce, <laughs> you know, like you you said that my prose is very legible, which I love. Uh, it's but it's also a chunky book, right? It's a fairly long <laughs> one, uh, and I've been told that the the demonstration is very minute and careful. <laughs> so it's um, it, it does have a very um, academic feel at times um, and so bringing Beyonce to the fore there was a way of trying to break that up a little bit in a way that would shock the reader into seeing the relevance of it or as a way of uh, signaling that there is actually relevance to this academic chapter um, sorry that we'll have to edit this <laughs> it's okay it's a way of signaling that this uh, chapter, despite its academic mold, actually has some purchase, has something to say about contemporary popular culture, right? I think that bringing Beyoncé into the mix is the most direct way. <laughs> of, of- <laughs> Yes. Um, so that was that was my thinking there. In terms of the second half of your question. Well, it's about trans historicity and and politics, right? So, I would say that um, you know the field in which I'm working is called pre modern critical race studies, which is a term coined relatively recently by by Marco Hendricks, um, and what the term critical in the name of the field signals is that we are attentive to the conditions of production in which we are working. Uh, So we are aware of the fact that working on race, recovering race in early modernity is going to have some implications for the present and is determined methodologically, effectively, politically by the political context in which we exist, right? In which we all exist in the present. So it's a field that um, has a, an activist brand, right? That has an activist uh, feel, uh, some, uh, some real po- political commitments, uh, and that is interested in probing the relation between the past and the present. Now, the question of what that relation exactly is, is an open question, at least for me. Uh, and I think that this this might be you know specific to me. I might have there might be other scholars in my field who uh, have a, you know who go about this differently, who pin down label perhaps more explicitly what they think the connection between past modes of racialization or uh, modes of racial figuration. Um, let me restart that sentence because I lost my thread. (laughs) It was too long. (laughs) Um, I think other scholars might be pinning down more clearly what the relation between early modern modes of figuration and present ones are, right? Or what the immediate payoff should be for studying the first one. I have a more open approach to it. I am interested in, you know, signaling that there are, that there are connections, that there are implications, right? That some tropes do have a transhistorical shelf life, that dance did the same kind of ambivalent ideological work at the time that it does now, that Black Speak does still exist in the world of stand-up comedy, but I'm not necessarily uh, interested in telling you what this means for the present. What I'm trying mm-hmm. to do is actually ask you: what do you think this means? What I do in that Blackspeak chapter, let's go back to that example, is say, here is some of the things, not all, some of the things that Blackspeak de- did in early modernity, right? Here are some of the ideological ideological effects that it had at the time. That technique still exists today. What do you think the effects of that technique are today in the different mm-hmm.
1: Context that
0: they live in. It's perhaps a more pedagogical approach, right? Yeah. um, So that's that's kind of how I function, and I think I am planting uh, throughout the book moments where the present operates as a, a flashpoint in order to keep the readers on their toes like that, to keep readers wondering, well, what about now? What are the connections? What does this mean for now, right? Um, so it's interactive in that sense. I want, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm not trying to dodge your question. I think that part really of my approach to the question of transhistoricity is getting the readers to answer those questions for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think... Um... Right. As scholars of literature, I, I think we're not particularly interested in pinpointing um, the origin or historical truth of what we see in the present, because that is impossible to do, right? What, what we want is ask productive questions that will um, hopefully will have an impact in how we think about the present mm-hmm. and about the past as well. Um, yeah. And also... Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, as early modern scholars, I think it's very exciting as well to see this approach because, well, as we know, um, studies of, of early modern literature, let's say, are not a student's first choice, maybe, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because of, of the difficulties it presents in, in the cultural distance, the historical distance, but also linguistic um, challenges, so right. to really see those those bridges being built, I think at least is very, um, very, um, very exciting to me as as a fellow early modernist. Hmm. Wonderful.
0: <laughs> I think it goes back to to what we were discussing just a few minutes ago, right? When you said this project is not a one woman project, right? Just like I'm I'm trying to get other scholars to to join, <laughs> to join the crew, uh, I'm trying to get my readers to join the investigation, to join the exploration, and to start building some of those bridges, to use your metaphor, for themselves.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Noemi, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I do want to ask a a final question that might be an annoying one because I know you just published this book after years and years of work. But I think uh, I speak for my listeners as well that we would be very excited to know what you're working on next.
0: This is not an annoying question. (laughs) Um, So my my new uh, manuscript project, book manuscript project, is uh, tentatively entitled Early Modernity in Black and Brown. And what it does is that it focuses on what I had to push to the side for a minute in order to write scripts of Blackness. And what I had to push to the side for a minute is those moments of convergence between the racialization of Black folks and of other non-white people. Earlier Mm -hmm. when we were talking about Blackspeak, I was mentioning how it's a technique that is of particular interest to me because sometimes it can bring together uh, Black folks and the Roma, right? Or Black folks and the Irish in the English context. Well, that's kind of rapprochement is what is at the core of my second book project. What I'm going to look at is the ways in which the dramaturgies of Blackness that were invented in early modernity and that I bring to the fore in Scripts of Blackness, having produced Blackness as a racial category, gave Uh, Europeans, blackness as a conceptual resource that could be put to work. And it could be put to work in order to assign a place to anyone, black folks, Mm -hmm. white folks, but also all brown people in the racial matrix. So in each chapter, I'm going to look at how uh, the relations, uh, solidarities, coalitions, but also frictions between uh, Black folks and other non-white people, Jews, Muslims, Roma, Indigenous folks, Asian folks, South Asian folks, right, Um, how they historically existed, but also how they were represented in dramatic culture and how uh, this worked towards this new articulation of the racial matrix as entirely anchored or gradually anchored by blackness throughout the early modernity. So that by the end of the 17th century, it was entirely anchored by blackness.
1: So that's, um, that's the project. Well that, that sounds we'll definitely um you know we be completely following your steps because that's very exciting for again a number of fields <laughs> across um different languages. Thank yeah. you so yeah. much, Noemi. This was a pleasure.
0: Thank you. This was lovely. I'm so I'm so happy you invited me to, to speak about my work. Thanks, Daniela.
1: Thank you and take care.